Welcome to episode 1837 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Can I tell you about one of the most disappointing pitches I have ever seen? Oh. <laughs> it happened on Thursday. I think it was maybe the worst pitch, possibly the worst pitch I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know. That could be a, a, an overstatement, but you know I'm always quick to celebrate Shohei Otani's accomplishments. Yes. So I must be honest when he comes up short. And the pitch that he threw on Thursday to Rangers backup catcher Jonah Heim with the bases loaded was probably one of the worst pitches I've ever seen, at least relative to expectations, because this was an 0-2 pitch in the second inning with the bases loaded, and Shohei Otani has been really devastating on 0-2 counts in his career to this point. And so you come into this pitch and you think, okay, you have Otani, he's up 0-2, you have Jonah Heim, who was the number nine hitter for the Rangers. He's a 26-year-old backup catcher. He entered this game with a career 64 WRC plus in 335 Major League Plate appearances and a 203, 251, 352 slash line. This is not a time when you would expect damage to be done, but damage was done. Jonah Heim hit a grand slam. (laughs) Yeah, he did. (laughs) And the pitch that he hit it on, it was a splitter technically. I mean, going by the grip, (laughs) but it did not split. It did not do anything. It did split one thing, which is the strike zone. It split the strike zone exactly (laughs) down the center. Like I have not calculated it, but if you were to calculate the exact center of the strike zone, this pitch could not have been more than an inch or two away from there. And it just sat there. As Otani said, it hung up there, or Heim also said that. That's an understatement, I think. And so relative to expectations, because Otani on O2 Entering this game, going back to 2018 when he debuted, among Major League pitchers with 3,000 pitches in all counts thrown over that time, 275 of them, Otani had the lowest weighted on base average allowed in O2 counts, not after O2 counts, but on O2 counts. He had allowed a 41 WOBA over that time, best in baseball. Yeah. When he threw an O2 splitter, It had been literally unhittable. He had never allowed a hit on an 0-2 splitter. And when those splitters had been put in play, or or I guess when the at-bat ended on an 0-2 splitter, opponents were 0-for-58 with 41 strikeouts. So again, I can't emphasize enough how unlikely it is that a grand slam would be hit by Jonah Heim on an 0-2 splitter from Shohei Otani. Like, if the apple probabilities of a home run here, I mean, who knows what they would have said. Probably 20%. Or 100%. Something. <laughs> exactly. We got precogs back there. If you had actual accurate probabilities of a home run on that pitch, it just, it would have been absolutely minuscule. But that is exactly what happened there. So I just, I got to say, like, relative to expectations, yeah, <laughs> that must be one of the worst pitches of all time. 
time. Like maybe, you know, Daniel Camarena against Max Scherzer hitting a Grand Slam last year, a, a Padres reliever just called up against maybe the best pitcher in the league. But even that pitch, like if you go back and watch that pitch, it wasn't that bad a pitch. Like it was yeah. a low pitch. It was below the strike zone, which made it all the more shocking and right. incredible that Camarena <laughs> hit a Grand Slam on it. But this pitch was the meatball to end all meatballs. So sorry, Shohei, you know I love you and you know I will take the slightest excuse to celebrate you. <laughs> but boy, that was a hanger. <sighs> Well, I think, you know, we have arrived at a strange place in terms of my association of a player with a person because I I didn't watch the start of this game. I was watching other stuff and doing other stuff. And then I clicked over because I was like, oh, yeah, show it. What's going on? And then I was like, oh, no, oh Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my that was my first thought that my my sadness was, you know, like I felt bad for Shoei, but I mostly felt bad for you. And yeah. that's that's interesting. That, <laughs> you know, I don't know what it means. I don't think that it, it has to be something that we either make grand pronouncements about or pathologize. But that was my first thought was, oh, Ben's so disappointed right now. And, yes. and maybe that's just because like I know you, you know, yeah. and I don't I don't know Otani. We are not mm -hmm. we are not acquainted. You know, we mm -hmm. don't send each other holiday cards. But um mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I was like, oh no. You know, sometimes it happens, man. Like great great players leave bad pitches in the zone and and mm -hmm. then less good players do something with them. That's just yeah. a, a thing that happens. <laughs> I mean, I think the more disconcerting thing, uh, this is perhaps less relevant in this case, given all of the stats that you've just run through. But like, you know, this, this isn't the first time he's thrown a bad pitch. He just gets away <laughs> with them sometimes and sometimes mm -hmm. he doesn't. Well, what are you going to do? It happens. Yeah. You're going to be sad, or I was, but yeah, he just didn't have it, didn't really have his no. command or his control no. last night, and sometimes that manifested itself in fairly wild deliveries that yeah. were way outside the strike zone, and that would have been preferable to yeah. this pitch, but I don't want to reinforce the idea that every home run is a mistake pitch or that it's right. always oh, left no. up there, because like, often there are home runs hit, other hits hit on pretty good pitches, or at yeah. least hard-to-hit pitches, yeah. and I think people often assume, oh, it must have been a mistake if someone did something good with it. But no, that's not the case. Sometimes the hitters are just really good. They're big league hitters. <laughs> but in this case, oh boy, that was that was like the epitome of a mistake pitch. If someone asked me to show them a mistake pitch, right. that would be the one that I would pick. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right that we, we sometimes, we don't give appropriate credit. Our distribution of credit and blame when when the ball goes a long, long way is not always properly calibrated. You know, sometimes right. you throw a really great, I mean, like the, Scher the Scherzer pitch you mentioned was a great example. Like, just went down and got that one, you know, mm -hmm. wasn't, it wasn't a bad pitch. Sometimes the other guy is just having a moment and does a good thing. Sometimes he is presented with an opportunity to do a good thing and he, he uh, politely declines. And sometimes... <laughs> You get a whopper and you're just like, I'm going to make that ball go a long, long way. And, <laughs> yep. you know, good for, good for Jonah Heim for doing that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're going to do emails today, I think, yeah. unless there's uh, anything else you want to touch on. I saw that Jay Jaffe just blogged about Seiya Suzuki and yes. how impressive he has been to start his career. So that has been fun to watch. I yeah. Mean, I had high hopes for him again, like not dissimilar from my hopes from Otani, which were just that, like, 
this guy was the best player in the second highest level league probably in the world and in Otani's case it was at a very young age Suzuki not as young an age but he was the best player in MPB last year at least going by war and also in 2019 I think and so I hoped that most of that would translate there's always a question with the power of course and that hasn't been an issue with Otani, who just hits the ball so hard so far that you know it would play in any league. That's not always the case with hitters who've come over from Japan. But Suzuki has shown not just power, but also plate discipline, which seems to set him up for success. Yeah, you know, you, you don't ever want to make too much of the beginning, but it is nice when there is sort of a proof of concept, right? That there is a demonstration of an ability to do some of the things that we expect there to be some, you know, growing pains around when a guy is moving from one league to another. So the fact that he has been able to turn around velocity, that he has been able to do stuff against big league pitching, like that's that's a good proof of concept. And the next thing that we will monitor is his ability to adjust when the league adjusts to him as it as it certainly will. And so, you know, we await that checkpoint with some amount of trepidation because you just never know how a guy's going to do, but you want to see it having been done. The ability to do it the one time is like, well, you have the capacity. Let's see how often mm-hmm. you can actualize that capacity. Right. So that part's going to be good. Yeah, it was a it was a big day at Fangrass for guys who have been really good in the beginning and us having to say like, they probably won't be this good going forward, but still be excited <laughs> about them. So, you know, we had Suzuki, we had mm-hmm. Ben's examination of Stephen Kwan with a lovely postscript about whether foul tips or whiffs. So uh, it, was a, it was a good day of, hey, this is fun, chill out, mm-hmm. but still be excited. You know, we're trying <laughs> to thread a very specific emotional needle. Yes. Okay. Well, speaking of being excited about things, let's start with this email from Sean, who says, just got into podcast and absolutely love baseball and love your podcast. I'm a high schooler in the Northeast in big lacrosse country. Obviously, there are baseball teams too. I want to get these guys to see what I see in baseball. They think it's long and boring. How would you guys describe baseball to make it the most appealing? So how are we going to help Sean convince his friends that baseball is not long and boring or is not just long and boring? (laughs) It is also appealing. I find myself at a bit of a disadvantage because I don't know what appeals to lacrosse people. You know, I famously am from the Northwest where there is some lacrosse played, but it is not a, you know, it's not the, the big sport. So I don't. You know, some of my assumptions about lacrosse people may not be generous, and I, I would hate to have them inform my answer here. I mean, I think that the way that I try to make baseball appealing to people is first to like find out what they like about sports, because I think baseball can answer a lot of the things that people like about sports in its in its own way. So like some people are going to enjoy sports as background. And I think if that's if that's your thing, right? If you wanna like have sports in your vicinity while you are conversing with a friend or contemplating your own existence, like nothing better than baseball for that, right? So that's one option. People who are intensely interested in strategy and analytics and sort of data as a way of understanding the world, like obviously baseball, so much to offer there. If there are more sort of like aesthetically minded people, then you start to talk about, you know, like the the, the, the beauty of the game, right? And it, it, the way that it unfurls in front of you and all the different kinds of bodies who can play it really well. So there's there's that piece of it. Maybe you like beer. 
Baseball has that, you know. <laughs> As an aside, I went to my first big league action of the year this week. I saw the the D-backs play the Astros in a day game. And um, Seth Beer came up in a pinch hit moment, like really important. And he did fine. Everybody's excited. And the D-backs just have beer. And they have like a beer as as the like big video board thing for him it's like Seth beer and then there's like a frosty beer in the background and I was like I don't know if that's it's just it's it's obvious but we don't have to be clever all the time yeah sure if you're handed a player named beer yeah just embrace it the official cerveza of your team yeah so like if you're if you're someone who wants to like kick back with some some brewskis and your and your pals you have that as an option I don't know like what what do you say to people when you're trying to convince them to like baseball? I feel very strange trying to convince people to like things. Like, I don't, that's part of, maybe part of my problem here is that I'm dealing from a deficit because it's like, I don't, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. You can like other stuff. People like lacrosse. Sure. People are into lacrosse. <laughs> okay, cool. Good for you. So I don't know how often I actively evangelize baseball, actively persuade people to like it who don't already like it, mostly probably the people who read me or listen to me when I'm writing or talking about baseball are already in the fold to some extent, so I guess just sharing my enthusiasm about it and hoping that people pick up on that and say, oh, he sure seems to like this thing. (laughs) Maybe I should pay attention to this too. That's kind of the best that I can do. I'm not going to twist your arm to like it, but obviously there are a lot of things that I like about it. I don't know that we should pretend that it's not long yeah, (laughs) and that there are times that it is boring. I mean, that is true. Like, I don't think that we can try to make baseball sound like or be like every other sport or every other high-intensity, adrenaline-fueled kind of competition. Like, there is certainly a time when it's exciting. Yeah. But it is also long. It is a big time commitment, and we hope it won't be this long forever. But you got to be honest about that if you were trying to get someone into the sport. And it does require a a kind of contemplation and appreciation maybe that takes a little time and doesn't necessarily leap off the screen at, at the first instant the way that some other more intense sports or or activities could so you know maybe i guess that the task is to try to persuade people to look beyond that and say okay it's not a full contact sport where people are running into each other and there are breaks in the action and the games are three hours etc etc so what do you like about it well we like the strategy we like the numbers we like the analysis We like the history. I love the history. That's a big part of how I got into it. Now, I guess that could be a tough sell to someone like, hey, there's, you know, a 150, 200 year backlog of stuff that happened here. So you can catch up on all of that. I mean, that's like when someone says that they like a certain TV show and it's like, we're in season 11. And it's like, oh boy. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot to catch up on now. So that can be a feature if you do get into it, but maybe that is an impediment to your getting into it in the first place when you feel like you're so far behind. But I guess I appreciate certain types of baseball highlights a lot. I mean, relative to any other sport, a a great defensive play in baseball is just one of my favorite types of highlights across any sport. So that's something maybe... 
pitch movement and just Mm -hmm. the otherworldly pitches that pitchers throw these days. I feel like if you showed people montages of just some of the pitches that are out there right now, that might be pretty eye-catching or just like... You know, I'm not saying lie to them, but, you know, put together a a montage of baseball at its best, like show them some highlights and say, does this look like the sort of thing that you'd be interested in? You know, just like show some guys hitting homers, show some guys stealing bases, uh, show some triples and inside the park home runs. I mean, show the exciting stuff. And if they aren't interested in that, then maybe it's hopeless. But if you can hook them with the highlights and say, well, this looks cool and fun and this is impressive and this is really hard to do, then I think the other things come with time. I mean, the appreciation for just the subtleties of the game and the in-game management and the strategy and the tactics and the sabermetrics and all of that. There are people who get into it through the numbers and the analysis. And so, yeah, if you have someone who's interested in that way of looking at life, then baseball is a rich text, perhaps the richest text. So, you know, maybe introduce them even via Moneyball or via some other foundational sabermetric text Mm -hmm. if you think that their interests lie that way. But otherwise, you know, don't show them Jonah Heim hitting the Grand Slam off Shohei Otani in a middle-middle pitch, but show them the opposite of that. Show them something really impressive, something, not that Jonah Heim's hitting was not impressive, but show them, you know, something cool and fun and hopefully that they will want to see more of that. Maybe that's a, a basic, obvious answer, but it's hard to go from zero to 60 on something, yeah. especially if you didn't grow up loving it and you don't have people in your life who are sort of instilling that love in you. It's kind of hard to come to it. So you have to find your way in, whatever that is. Well, and, I, and like I said, I do think it's important to have sort of a sense of the person you're talking to and what they like about anything. Like what is what is yeah. tends to be their entry point to a new hobby or pursuit? You know, how can you kind of meet them where they are with the thing that you like best? I think that when you do it that way, it feels like more of a, a conversation and a give and take rather than like my sport, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that you're, you're taking into consideration sort of how they move through the world and how they come to like things. And if you can do that, then I think your odds are better. It doesn't mean that you'll succeed, but you might get there. Mm-hmm. All right. Here is a question from Jacob. I'm a casual fan who wants to better learn to identify which pitches pitchers are throwing. It occurred to me that this would work much easier if the ball were a different color for each pitch. Say that the pitcher got to choose a red ball for fastball, blue for changeup, green for slider, and so forth. Besides increasing my ability to detect the pitch, this could increase offense. My question for you is how much better would hitters be at the plate if they got to take advantage of such a visual cue? Oh, I yeah, when when this email came across the transom, I was like, "Oh, that's a good question." And then I stopped thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, I guess that the the most recent example of this that we can point to is probably the Astros, right? They weren't taking advantage of colored balls, but they had the signs, so they knew what in theory was coming. And it helped some, but not as much as people thought, right? Wasn't that the mm-hmm. conclusion of a lot of the research? Yeah, some analyses suggested it didn't help at all, which, you know, 
could be, at least in the aggregate, that is. And, you know, it, it seemed like there were some times when they got it wrong and they right. relayed the wrong sign. And you could see how that would be extra damaging if you were certain that a certain pitch type were coming right. and then something else came. So between that and between like the distraction of the banging, you know, right. in that little window there, there are a lot of reasons why I, I think maybe it might be less helpful to get the sign than you would think or just the fact that you're not used to having the sign and it's sort of disruptive but this it seems like would be even clearer oh yeah (laughs) this would be i i gotta think this would be a a pretty big advantage yeah i i imagine that it would be pretty meaningful to know precisely and that doesn't mean that like the pitcher is gonna hit their spot every time and it doesn't mean that things are you know just because it's a a particular kind of pitch doesn't mean you're going to be able to predict precisely how it moves, for instance, but I would imagine it would be a pretty sizable advantage. I will say if if this is not quite what the question was asking, but I, I think that it's nice. Um, we may have talked about this on the pod before, but it does feel like more broadcasts are endeavoring to tell the viewer what they understand a pitch to be sort of as part of the score bug. Um, Mm. I know that the White Sox do this uh, a fair amount on their broadcast where in addition to velocity, it will tell you, I assume it's whatever StatCast thinks the pitch type is, right? It's Mm -hmm. how it's being classified by StatCast. So it's not perfect. I say this in part because I watched Matt Brash start against the White Sox and they thought that everything was a knuckle curve and not everything was, but <laughs> the, it was his first big league start. So like Stackhouse had to learn what his repertoire was. But I think that that is a useful way if you are trying to improve your own sort of visual pitch identification to have the feedback of what StatCast thinks the pitch is. Again, yeah. it's not going to be perfect every time, but I think that as you're trying to sort of lock in that pattern recognition, getting that immediate feedback, not only of velocity, but of the actual pitch type itself, because depending on the guy, like your intuitive understanding of where different pitches fall from a velocity band perspective might be really wrong. (laughs) So I think that if you're trying to sort of hone that, that's a useful way to do it. It gives you a little more information and you can kind of say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is cutting glove side or arm side or what have you. So that might be a thing to check out. But yeah, it would be and like, where would you keep them? Would you have a basket of balls on the mound where you're like, oh, I got to go get my curveball ball now? Right. Yeah. Or <laughs> you'd have to inform the umpire what pitch type you were planning to throw so that they could throw you the appropriate ball. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that'd be a, a huge advantage, though, because, oh, of yeah. course, you could pick up on it immediately with yes. a different color, assuming you're not colorblind. And yeah. then you could just immediately lock in to hit that. I mean, yeah. I don't know what percentage of the hardness of hitting not knowing which pitch is coming is, but it's a pretty big percentage. It's also just like hard to hit objects that are moving that fast and moving that much, but a large part of it is that you can't anticipate. And, you know, you talk about the Shohei Otani O2 numbers for splitters. I mean, a big part of that is that you don't necessarily know that a splitter is coming and maybe you don't realize that it's a splitter. And so it looks like something else. And he has a whole bunch of options that he could be throwing in that count. So, Yes. I I mean, hitters will train sometimes with balls that have some kind of visual cue, like they'll be labeled a certain way so that you can get 
training and practice picking yeah. up pitch types and maybe getting better at recognizing those out of a pitcher's hand and, and maybe they even have different colors too I wouldn't be surprised if that has been a training tool but yeah you throw that out there in a real game and you know what colors correspond to what pitches you're gonna get rocked so yep. but it would be helpful for uh, fans who are just getting into baseball to be yeah. able to pick up on those pitch types because that can be a really tough thing especially like in person I mean oh yeah when I went to scout school and just was supposed to like grade pitches or or recognize pitches in person often without a radar gun or anything it's like oh boy I (laughs) that was a pitch I really don't know like you know I have watched a lot of baseball in my life and played some baseball I didn't play at such a high level that I like develop the ability to distinguish pitch types very accurately from personal experience and so when you're just sitting there especially if you're like off to the side or something and you're not seeing the view that you're used to like on tv you get a centered or centered-ish view from behind the pitcher you're looking right at it you're maybe seeing the signs you can see which way it moves you're getting the immediate feedback of the velocity at least in most cases which helps you narrow it down at the very least but you take away all of those cues and all of those crutches and boy it can be pretty tough to pick up on what someone is pitching so yeah yeah all right question from michael in chicago with the new pitch com system more people than just the pitcher can have receivers to hear what pitch is being called typically it's the middle infielders and the center fielder i.e the players who would have seen the signs anyway What if the home plate umpire also had a receiver? How would knowing the expected pitch type and location help or hinder their ability to call balls and strikes? So this is sort of along the lines of what we were just saying, right? If you know what's coming, then you're certainly able to hit it much easier. Do you think that you would be significantly better at calling those pitches as the umpire if you could anticipate not just location? I guess you already get some sense of location from where the catcher's setting up, but you would know how the pitch was going to move, how fast it would be. That would be a lot more information than you usually have. I think it would help some, right? I think that it maybe would combat You know, sometimes a catcher will sort of hurt their pitcher's cause by the way that they are receiving the ball, where they are getting it in the zone, but they are jerking it so much that the I think the umpire assumes that they are framing a a ball into a strike. Mm -hmm. And so if you knew what kind of pitch type it if you knew what pitch type it was and so could sort of mentally project where in the zone it might end up landing. I think that some of that stuff might get ameliorated, but I don't know. I went back and forth on this when I came in because on the one hand, you would imagine that it would sort of help to have the umpire train where they think it's going to go more precisely even than the catcher setting up because sometimes catchers set up, you know, in a tricksy sort of way, like they yes. set up in a, in a tricksy way to try to to fool the hitter. And so in, in that respect, I think it would be useful because you aren't reliant on the visual cue of where the catcher is setting up. But I also wonder if, you know, for very close borderline pitches, does it really... Does it really help one way or the other? Does it help or hinder? I'm not quite sure because you're still having to make a 
a snap call about something that is very, you know, so we're talking about very minute differences in where the ball is relative to the zone. So I'm, I'm conflicted about how much I think this would help. I don't know that it, I don't think it would hinder the accuracy of calls any more than anything else does, but I'm not, I'm not convinced how much I think it would help. How much do you think it would help, Ben? A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Think. Measurably, appreciably. Sure. Not like suddenly they'd be robo-umps or anything, but I think it would help a little bit to be able to anticipate that movement and not be so fooled by the pitch that you're like flustered or that you lose track of where it actually crossed the plate. I, I think that would help. So I don't know. I wonder whether there'd be any risk of the umpire's pitch com being overheard by the batter. <laughs> like, it's apparently not loud enough in some cases. Garrett Cole complained about not being able to hear the pitch com because of one of those obnoxious sound effects at Yankee Stadium, which, granted, those are really loud. <laughs> so yeah. maybe they should just turn those down instead of turning the pitch com up. But you would think that in the playoffs, for instance, when there's lots of noise and big crowds, you would want to make sure that those are loud enough to be heard. So I don't know whether there's a possibility that if the umpire had a pitch com device that the batter could eavesdrop, (laughs) but if not, then I could see it being beneficial. Like sometimes we've talked in the past about maybe the ump having some kind of assisted reality device, like some sort of tracker that would show them where the pitch crossed the plate, like either it could be just a a signal like a visual cue like a light goes on or something so that they're able to see that like the robo ump system the abs system would not be making the call but it would just be an assist for the umpire potentially or that they could just see something in real time some goggles or something so that they could see (laughs) where the pitch crossed the plate and they would still have the latitude to make the call as they saw it but they would have some sort of visual feedback or assistance there so This would not be that, and it would be a little less heavy-handed, and it would still preserve more of the human element, but it might help. It might help compensate just for the fact that it's an impossible job that you can't actually see where this ball that is traveling so fast and moving so much crosses the plate just with the way the human eye works. So if you're able to anticipate the movement so that you could maybe focus on a certain part Part of of the the plate or the zone, yeah, and and say, well, it's going to drop because it's a curve or it's a slider or something. And so I don't have to look at the entire zone. I mean, I guess you could get yourself in trouble there, right? Like if right. you, you, you hyper specialize, you're, right. you're like, it's going to go there and I'm going to just focus on there. And then the pitcher misses a spot or something and it goes somewhere else. I mean, right. then what do you if, do? Yeah. It, maybe if you're missing by a lot anyway, it's going to be a ball, but not necessarily. So that could get you in trouble, but it, it could also help. It's like with a hitter, if a hitter can focus on a certain part of the zone, like, you know, hitters ahead in the count knows that the pitcher is going to try to come into the zone. And you can just kind of eliminate a large portion of that real estate that usually you have to control that makes you better. I think it could do something similar with umpires potentially. I think that you're right. I think the moment for us to have done funny goggles has passed because (laughs) the real joy of it would have been telling Joe West he had to wear them. And now he's retired. So what is the the joy of funny goggles? I want to be in the room when that gets pitched to the umpires union, by the way. As an aside, like you know how you get heckled at work every single day? We're going to add goggles. That'll make it better. (laughs) All right. This one is mostly for you, I think. This is from Mark. 
It seems there has been a lot written on Yandi Diaz and his lack of obvious power, despite the size of his biceps. This made me wonder, can Yandi be labeled a beef boy, despite (gasps) his career 134 isolated power? Do the stats need to match the size, or is being a beef boy just a physical description of a beefy boy? What a, I mean, just a tremendous question. Um, real banger on this a Friday. Um, I would, I would assert the following, which is that being a beef boy is, well, see, I'm going to potentially contradict myself. I guess I'm curious if Yandi Diaz understands himself to be a beef boy, because on the one hand, I'm inclined to think that being a beef boy is a simple statement of of, of fact. It is a descriptor. Yep. It carries with you regardless of your performance. You know, not all of the beef boys are are big boppers. They're not mm-hmm. all they're not all succeeding at the plate. Some of them are not actualizing their beef boy potential <laughs> despite the possession of beef boy tools. And that's true of the ones who hit the ball on the ground far less often than Yandi Diaz. But I also am interested in an examination of beef boy as a state of mind. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, I wonder if we are we are perhaps too quick to to characterize Yandi as a beef boy because he just puts the ball on the ground to a remarkable extent for a guy yes. who is built the way he is. I mean, he he has to be one of my favorite players to think about because it isn't uh, sensical. It doesn't it doesn't track or register or seem right that someone who is that powerfully built in his arms would put the ball I'm just gonna, you know, people know about Yandi Diaz and his ground ball tendencies, but we're gonna spend some time contemplating them. This is Yandi Diaz's ground ball percentage since 2017. 59%, 53.3, 50.8, 66 in 2020, which as an aside, in 2020, which again, like this was 138 plate appearances across the 34 games he played in in an abbreviated slate, but he put the ball on the ground 66% of the time, 139 WRC+, plus, the highest <laughs> WRC+, plus he's had his entire career. <sighs> and then uh, 51.8 last year and uh, 50% of the time so far in, in the early going of this 2022 season. Again, six games, 22 played appearances from Yandi. So he has a a nice WRC plus of 69 going into today's action. But so like for Yandi, you know, does Yandi know himself to be a beef boy? Is his understanding of his own personhood that I wouldn't dare to speculate because I don't know him. And, you know, beef boy, we mean it affectionately and we mean it to describe a vast typology of physiques, right? There's some mm-hmm. beef boys who are like Giancarlo Stanton, who look mm-hmm. like uh, like baseball uh, uh, aliens, like demigods in terms mm-hmm. of their physique. And then I think we would also say that like Daniel Vogelback is a beef boy, right. different kind of beef boy. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need to be an overly restrictive definition in terms of the aesthetic or the, or the physiology that it is describing. But in terms of how one understands oneself, like epistemologically, I, I don't know that I want to speak for Yandi, but it, it is... One of the great contradictions of baseball in 2022 that that man puts the ball on the ground as often as he does. It is remarkable. How many, what's the record for saying beef boy on a podcast? I think I broke it. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah. I mean, in terms of physique, like he's, he's cultivating the beef, obviously, like he's uh, spending a lot of time in the gym building the beef. So 
he would not mind, I, I don't think, being described as a beef boy. I mean, if we're talking about his build, that oh, is and the we, build that he exactly. is, uh, <laughs> he, he's going for. I mean, probably the worst thing we could suggest is that he is not a beef boy. If you're a, a bodybuilder to that degree, like uh, you don't want someone downplaying your gains, right? So, I oh, mean, no. he would, I'm sure, be flattered. He would uh, be pleased to be a beef boy, I would think. So the question is then, is beef boy about the physique or is it about the production because he does not have the production that one would associate with someone no. his size or with a beef boy necessarily and so that's the question do you have to be a slugger to be a beef boy or is that purely a description of your physique and your appearance and there are different types of of appearance that could be described as a beef boy too right as we're right. saying i mean vogelbach is different from <laughs> stanton is different from diaz they're all just large men yeah. so that's kind of the constant there but the specifics of the body composition differ a bit from beef boy to beef boy so it's just you know where do you tip the scales is a big part of it I suppose, and you can tip the scales for any number of reasons in yeah. any number of ways. So, so that's the question. Like, do you have to have the power output that one would stereotypically associate with a beef boy to be a beef boy? And I guess that we're saying the answer is not really no. I mean, if you look like Yandy Diaz, you can be a beef boy regardless of whether you hit the ball in the air or over the fence. I think that Beef Boy's a state of mind, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe even for someone who uh, hits like a Beef Boy, walks through the world like a Beef Boy, has like Beef Boy energy. Yeah. Without necessarily- <laughs> Got Beef Boy vibes. <laughs> looking the part. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, let's, let's be broad in our applications of the term. All right. Jacob says- Manfred's decision to give every player a pair of headphones on opening day wasn't the only headphone-related tidbit that caught my eye in opening weekend. When watching the Mariners-Twins game, the Mariners manager wanted to challenge a call, so he made the motion like he was putting on some over-ear headphones to trigger the review. But I saw that the umpire was no longer using a headset to review yeah. the call, but instead has a small earbud that can be popped in and out with one hand. So should the replay review signal be altered to reflect the new technology being used? If not, years from now, do you think fans will forget the origin of the replay review signal altogether if it continues to no longer correspond to what the umpires are actually doing? I think it... No, I think it'll be fine because... There are still over-ear headphones in the world. It is not as if, you know, Rob Manfred was, I, I guess, did not extend his generosity to the population more broadly. So we no. are all still possessed of, I am wearing over-ear headphones right now. I mean, uh -huh. just to record this podcast. It is, I will say, the only time I do that because they pinch the top of my head. They become uncomfortable on the top of my head, not on my ears, but on the top of my head. It is a design flaw in these particular ones. But anyway, no, I think that you don't need to overcomplicate these things. We don't have to have our signifiers be infinitely adaptable to the moment because people know what that means. And I'm I'm doing the motion right now. None of mm -hmm. you can see it, but you'd be like, oh, Meg is signaling with her headphones. Whereas mm -hmm. like, if you are putting in like an earpiece, I think that's a much more ambiguous motion. You might be like, is there something in your ear? Do you need to like pop your ears? <laughs> yeah. Are you worried that like there's something in there? Remember the one time that an umpire got a, 
a bug in his ear and they had to take it yeah, out. Or Slayer had a moth in his ear. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happens. Yeah, that happens. So like, do you need medical assistance or are you trying to to assess whether the call in the field was right? You don't want ambiguity in that moment, especially if you do in fact need medical assistance. So mm-hmm. I think it's fine. I think people will understand. I think it's funny that Manfred seemed to pick like I have like Bose in-ear headphones, so I can say this. Like he picked like the dorkier version of headphones. He wasn't like, I'm going to send everyone Beats, which seems to be a much more popular choice. I think he, I think he did, actually. It was initially reported that, that they were Bose, but then there was a follow-up oh. clarification. I saw that they were <laughs> they were indeed Beats. Oh, so. okay. So he, <laughs> and now I'm going to do something wildly unfair. Are you ready? So he went okay. the, how do you do fellow kids route? <laughs> Not nice of me, Rob. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's no one in here. But um, I think people will know what that means. I don't think it will cause confusion. I feel bad for, there used to be a person who had to stand there with the, yeah. the replay pack. What happened to those folks? I know. Hopefully it wasn't like mass layoffs with the <laughs> people holding the replay thing. I can't imagine that was their only game day responsibility. No, but probably. Yeah. But yeah, what what befell those, those people we should have a follow-up to know about. Yeah. It's a very important and visible role in the recent history of MLB. But yeah, I don't think there's any confusion about what that is supposed to signify now, but I could foresee a time. I mean, if, if that becomes the standard signal for a replay review and we persist with something resembling our current replay review system decades hence when we're long removed from actually having the -the over-the-ear headphones as part of the review i could see like you know maybe like a hundred years from now like people will still be doing that and people on uh effectively wild episode you know a million will be like did you know you know i just discovered that this is a relic of uh, how in like 2020 they used to actually have these old-fashioned archaic over-the-ear headphones that they would use to do the review like you know the the signal could become divorced and and separated from the actual meaning so that it just it's a tradition that's how you signal for the replay review but no one knows how or why that started like there are a lot of baseball traditions and traditions in general you know sayings little relics in the language where we say these things and we don't know the etymology so that could happen at some point like maybe as long as we have over the ear headphones in the world and, and that's like an acknowledged accepted gesture and people generally know what that means it's not like putting on a hat or something you know people recognize that i think it's close enough to the in-ear headphones like they're both headphones we can make that leap together but at some point in the future i could imagine that people might still use that symbol and might forget why so like over ear headphones are like pogs or like typewriters (laughs) this is so upsetting it's just it's it's all happening a lot faster than i thought it would in my own life you know the the aging it's like going at a speed that i was not prepared for yeah i guess i mean won't we all have implants that just you know yeah i mean we won't even have have headphones we'll we'll have some kind of like I mean, they already have, you know, bone conduction headphones. They're still headphones, but but yeah, we'll just have some some chip in our heads that uh, surely won't cause any other problems or dystopian outcomes. But <laughs> we'll just be able to stream everything directly into our brains. 
I like the optimism of thinking like a hundred years from now, we're going to have to worry about what baseball is doing. I mean, not you and I specifically. I think we're realistic about our own lifespans, but just that like there will be problems that the league has to address that aren't like it's 190 degrees on the surface of the earth everywhere. Can we play baseball today? Probably not. Yeah. Hopefully this is what they're worrying about the yes. people of then. <laughs> Why do we do that over-the-ear headphones gesture yeah. that we don't know the origin of? All right, question from Joseph. I am a Braves fan and have been watching their festivities the past few days, including when they honored their gold glove and silver slugger winners from last year before yesterday's game. That, combined with watching Matt Olson get thrown out twice at home, got me thinking, what if there were a third award to celebrate base running, the Ruby Runner? So you got the gold gloves, you got the silver slugger, you got the ruby runner. What type of player would y'all like to see get this award? The player who steals a lot of bases and doesn't get caught that much? Starling Marte or Whit Merrifield? The player who doesn't steal all that much but runs the bases really efficiently? Hmm. I'll always be a sucker for Ozzy Albies in this regard. A really adventurous and entertaining base runner? I'm thinking Javi Baez, of course. Are there players who might be surprisingly competitive for this award? Would it matter how the award is decided? In other words, are coaches and managers more or less likely to pick certain types of players than the rest of us might be. I mean, when we assess base running, like from an analytics perspective, we are trying to account for all of those things. I mean, not the like aesthetic flair piece of it that Mm -hmm. we sadly cannot put into the stat in part because it's value priceless. But Mm -hmm. I think that I would want someone who is thought to be like a sort of a a good base runner and I would understand that to be someone who has both like good base running success from a steals perspective but also more broadly is is an efficient base runner takes second when they should you know avoid stubble plays that sort of thing so I think I would want both and I imagine that we would probably understand it to be both in part because like base stealing totals are still kind of low relative to prior eras, right? Mm -hmm. So like we would probably not be satisfied just with a a high number because it would it would like constrain the field in a way that might not be fun. I don't know though, because we are sure able to be charmed, like just generally. And so like if somebody posted a really high stolen base total, even if their overall success rate wasn't very good, maybe we would be susceptible to that. But I imagine the narrative around them would not be they're a great base runner. Like if you had someone who had an absurdly high, and I'm going to pick a like a number we wouldn't see. Like So last year among qualified hitters, Marte led with 47 stolen bases. So let's say that we, I'm going to pick a uh, an absurd number. Like let's say that somebody had 65 stolen bases in a year, but they only had like a 50% success rate. How would we talk about that person? I mean, they that scenario wouldn't unfold because if someone only had a 50% success rate, their team would tell them to stop stealing bases. Yes. <laughs> so like I am acknowledging the absurdity of the scenario that I am laying out, but like we probably wouldn't talk about them as being a good base runner. I mean, you and I wouldn't. Other people might. This is where I am struggling. Maybe, yeah. I mean, in earlier eras, there were base runners like that who got caught a ton and also stole a ton, and that was just seen as more acceptable back then, or the break-even point was a little lower. But I think if you were to recognize a runner with the Ruby Runner, I I think it would have to encompass more than just base stealing because that is the most visible and obvious and probably widely recognized aspect of base stealing already. I mean, people are generally more aware of the 
players who swipe a lot of bags than they are of the players who are just really good at taking the extra base. Often it's the same players because they're speedier, they have good base running instincts, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are players who don't steal a lot of bases but are good at not getting thrown out on the bases. I mean, you could have an award for that, right? You could have a a toot blend award or just like the most spectacular outs on the bases award, but if we're recognizing accomplishments here, and this is not like the Razzies, the Ruby Runner is for good runners, then... I think it would be most useful maybe to recognize the good base runners who are good in non-obvious ways Mm -hmm. and who just are good at taking the extra base and not running into outs. So I don't know how exciting that would be, (laughs) but I think that would be a case where you would actually be educating people by saying, hey, here's an undervalued skill that this player has. And and as you said, you know, a fan grass base running metric or baseball reference or baseball prospectus, they try to incorporate all of those things and they may break it down into components. So you can look up how much of that is from base dealing specifically and how much is from other kinds of base running. But I'd be fine with giving a base running award as long as it was not just giving it to the stolen base champion of the league, but being a bit broader or even focusing specifically on just that less recognized skill. And maybe that is what coaches or managers might pick up on. I mean, I'm always skeptical when it comes to coaches, managers voting on awards because they just don't get to see everyone all the time and they have a lot of things on their minds. And so I don't know how good they were historically at gold gloves. I think those have probably improved now that they have a statistical component too. So again, like no one manager or coach or player or whatever can see every single game and every single player. And often it does take that watching day in and day out and every play to really appreciate base running. Like you might be able to really recognize some instance, some super Javi Baez incident where he slides around a tag and it's, it's exciting and it's fun and he dekes someone into making mistake. That's great. But you kind of have to be watching all the time to recognize someone who is consistently taking the extra base and not running into outs. So I think stats probably do that already about as well as the most observant person could, and no one is able to watch every player at all times. So I think you could probably do it fairly decently with stats already, and that may not capture the flair and the style and the aesthetics of it, but just in terms of the efficiency and the value, I think you could get most of the way there. Yeah, I think you could too. Um, I like the idea of acknowledging that part of the game because we often lament that it does not feel as vital to any team's success as it used to. I mean, it's so important to be like a good base runner, but in terms of steals, like that's just not as as big a part of the modern game as it used to be. And so highlighting the folks who run well, both in terms of base stealing and then just their their general sort of acumen on the base paths would be good, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like last year, according to the Fangrass base running runs metric, Starling Marte led the majors in that as well as stolen bases, but there are some players who are more decoupled. I mean, you had... Fernando Tatis Jr. was second in base running runs, but ninth in stolen bases. Or Ozzy Albies, who was mentioned in the question, he was 14th in stolen bases with only 20, but he still had the third most base running runs. So you're not going to get a lot of guys who have no ability to steal bags and are really great base runners, but there are players who add much more value in one area or the other. So, yeah. All right. Question from Merritt, who says, 
I'm trying to get into baseball this season, go Twins as a dependable summer distraction, and as I've searched for an emotional entry point into the game, I've found myself a little put off by the amount of player movement. Most sports become accessible to me because I get attached to the team chemistry, story, or individual player narratives, but it's difficult to become too attached to any cohesive team in baseball when it feels like players could be gotten rid of at any time. For example, the departure of my all-time favorite, Williams Astadio. I understand this is how baseball works, and I'm sure it goes back to money on some level, but for a sport which is trying to cultivate fans, and especially women fans like me, I'm curious whether the high player movement impacts our ability to emotionally invest in the game, or to invest in a t-shirt for that matter. Second, I know very little about baseball, but per the Moneyball film, it seems like the mental strength of the game is important. You can have talent, but if your mental strength is poor, your whole performance can collapse. With the way player movement happens now, I imagine the players must have to be extremely calloused to deal with the ever-shifting group of people they call team. I imagine it would be hard to invest or lean on your fellow teammates knowing they or you might get traded at any time, sometimes because of one bad play or missed catch. As an outsider to the sport, it seems like cultivating this callousness could easily backfire or at least not churn out the best performance. This touchy-feely way of looking at men's sports is probably easy to dismiss, but I think it's hard to explain away teams who have middling talent and excellent chemistry, who completely destroy teams with lots of talent but no chemistry. I'm looking at the recent Tar Heels run to the championship as an eight seed. Anyway, if you can speak to this issue at all, I'd be very interested. And I responded to Merritt just to uh, profess my own ignorance of the turnover rates in other sports and leagues compared to MLB yeah. because I don't follow the others so closely and I didn't know what the numbers were. And she actually went above and beyond and educated me by looking up some research on that. So she then wrote back to say, the roster turnover numbers I found for other professional sports organizations were around 25% for the NFL, according to a September 2021 article, and around 35% for the NBA, according to another source, a roster continuity page, and another article, and then around 46% for MLB, according to a 2010 to 2018 study by our friend Rob Means at Baseball Prospectus, which has shown an uptick in turnover rate over time. And she writes, it's interesting that there's a lot of noise about the recent increase in player movement in the NBA, but very little in MLB despite the apparent percentage difference. I suppose how the players leave by their own volition or not, or due to graduation or not, might impact the conversation. So she is interested, she says, in whether continuity is a market inefficiency. Does the clubhouse chemistry and overall performance improve if player movement goes down? And are fans impacted by player movement? A 2010 article that she links to and that I will also link to on the show page claims that for each percentage point increase in the turnover of the composition of the team, attendance will fall by 0.7%. An anecdote for this point was a Twins home game my husband and I had attended last season where all of the t-shirts for sale were for players who were no longer on the team. And that kind of study, I imagine there might be some confounding factors there. I yeah. haven't looked to see if they adjusted for that, but if there's a, a ton of player movement, it, it could also be that the team is in a transitional phase and maybe right. is not winning a whole lot and that could cause it, attendance to fall as well. Yeah, I imagine that. Well, I, so I think two things. I think the the first is that the nature of the movement probably matters a great deal, right? If you have a bunch of guys say, and I'd have to look at how these studies are sort of defining movement. I, I know I've read Rob's piece, but I don't remember 
on the contents of it. Sorry, Rob. Right. Yeah, there could be different definitions of, of turnover rate in these various studies. So. Right. So it's like, are we counting, say, you know, relievers at the edge of the roster going up and down from AAA? Is that considered movement or is it leaving the organization? Right. I think Rob was looking at like just total plate appearances and, and batters faced and, you know, how many of the players who accounted for those last year were also on the team this year, like what percentage of the plate appearances plus batters face were produced by the same players. Gotcha. So I, I think you're right that like the nature of the movement probably varies um, depending on the team. So, and I think that the character of that movement is probably pretty important to how fans feel about it. So, you know, if a team, like you said, is sort of in a period of transition on the big league roster, you might see a lot of guys coming and going as the the big league club tries to determine like, is Lamont Wade Jr. good? Right. Should we continue to roster him like they the Giants kept him around, but they had a bunch of sort of post hype post prospect guys in the last couple of years who they sort of cycled through to see, like, can we help this guy stick? Can we get something out of him? Is is he worth being a complimentary piece as we try to retool the roster? So I, I think that how fans sort of connect to and view that stuff is perhaps maybe different than, you know, a team like, say, the Rays, where it's like there is a predictable payroll level at which a guy's spot might be imperiled, not because of his play on the field, but because of budgetary constraints. I think that those things probably read and feel really different to you as a fan. And we've talked about before, I think it is really important, maybe not your entire roster, but I think it is really meaningful for fans to be able to buy a jersey with confidence, right? Like it it's great that Rays fans have Wander Franco now and can and just be invested in him for the next couple of years. And that doesn't mean he'll be a Ray for the duration of that extension, but like you can buy his jersey today and feel like you're going to be able to wear it on opening day next year and not worry about it, right? Like it's mm -hmm. good that Guardians fans get to be confident that Jose Ramirez is going to be around, right? That That's meaningful to be able to have your guy on the team who you connect with so that there is a human face to the franchise and it isn't just, you know, laundry generally. It's it's that guy's laundry, which is a funny sentence out of context, right? <laughs> so I think that it it does matter having a connection to the team and being able to feel like there's some stability. And I think part of that emotional experience is probably what else that stability signifies, right? Like if you have a good big league team that doesn't have a lot of roster turnover because the team has has properly identified the players who can help them win. Part of why that feels good to you as a fan is that you you know the the dudes on the team and you know their stories and you're invested in them. And part of that is probably also that your team is winning more than it was when it was going through like the churn phase of of a roster of roster construction. So I think it matters. I mean, how much it matters. I think it probably, like I said, depends on the character of the movement, the overall fortunes of the team, and like how much that aspect of it resonates with you as a fan. But if it does, I think it matters a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the turnover rate obviously has increased over time, and it increased a lot post-free agency when sure. players had the option to go somewhere right. different, which is not a bad thing, although it has definitely made for more turnover. And I don't think of it as something that's an impediment to my enjoyment of baseball. Now, I could see how if you were just getting into the game and half the players on the team that you're watching one year are gone the next year, that could be daunting. Like, if you yeah. didn't grow up with some connection to a team, then you're not really rooting for laundry. You're probably rooting for the players who are inside that laundry. And so right. if the players are all different the next year, then you're going to say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I liked that guy, and now he's not here anymore. So, yeah, as we talked about with the Freddie Freeman situation, like it hurts when someone like Freddie Freeman leaves. It hurts less when you get someone like Matt Olson to replace him. Right. So it depends. I, I think first and foremost, fans care about is the team good? Will the team win a lot? And you have to have some consistency and carryover. I mean, if it's just, you know, you're wiping the slate clean constantly and the players who are playing for the team one day are different from the next day, then that's an issue. And and we've talked, I think, in the past about the idea of, like, acquiring players in the middle of the season. And I think we did a, a stat blast maybe about just how much of the Braves' production in the playoffs last year was produced by players who joined that team in the middle of the year and how unusual that was and how it's kind of weird that, like, you can win a World Series and it can be a, a bunch of players propelling you to that title who weren't with you all year at right. times. You're usually still pretty happy that you won that World Series. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that Atlanta fans are sad about that. <laughs> no. So I think fans have a pretty high tolerance for that and that maybe, yeah, maybe it is about the way that they leave because in the NBA, I mean, I constantly hear about the player empowerment era, right, and about players just, you know, engineering their way off of certain teams and onto certain teams and yeah. playing with other players that they want to play with and forming super teams. And I could see how potentially as a fan – that might be off-putting if you felt like one of your superstars like wanted to go and was like, I don't want to be here anymore, and players were doing that often. I could see how the lack of continuity might be off-putting to some degree, but if it's just that, well, guys are getting traded or, you know, and, and we've talked about the fact that you have players cycling off and on of rosters and, and going down to AAA and coming back up and hopefully with the new length of IL stints and option stints that you won't have quite as much of that right. turnover at the back of rosters because I think that is tough. Like even if they're not going to a different organization, even if it's just a matter of going back and forth from the majors to the yeah. minors, if you just like don't know who that guy is, <laughs> I've never seen that player before. Who is that who is suddenly pitching for my team? That can be a, a bit disorienting, I think, and can be a little harder to get invested in the action if you just don't know the characters. I mean, it's like if you were watching a TV show and suddenly they like swapped in all different actors and <laughs> different characters and like the overarching plot were somehow the same, but it was just like different figures doing everything. You'd be like, what? I, I'm lost suddenly. So I could see how you would have that sort of reaction in baseball. But I don't know. To me, I, I guess like maybe I, I'm just I'm less of a fan of one team. So to me, it matters maybe less than it would to most people because it's right. like as long as that guy is still somewhere in MLB, I still get to follow his work and enjoy him. So I, you know, to me, it's probably less important than it would be to most fans of a single team. But even so, I, I don't know. I think as long as you're winning, fans are, are generally willing to put up with it. 
Yeah, I think that you always sort of have to adjust for your general franchise sort of vibes experience, right? Mm -hmm. Although, I don't know, like there are probably like fans of mm, how how would we test this? Like, you know, I'm sure that you could take a, a franchise like the Yankees, which has been generally very, very good over the course of its entire history, you know, with peaks and valleys and all that. And I know you guys haven't won a World Series in a century or whatever, but like, you know, you're uh, you, a Yankees fan, you root for a good team and you have seen a lot of good teams. And I'm sure that there are within the pantheon of good teams, even within the pantheon of World Series winning teams, like probably teams where you're like, that was a really fun team and I felt invested more in that roster than I did in the guys on some other championship squads. So I think there's still probably variability even within your experience of teams that are very good pretty consistently. But I do think that winning tends to cure a lot of ills. And we see that like we see that on the roster itself, right? Like guys who get along really well in a year where they're winning are like having fights in years when they're not. So it's, you know, everybody is sort of subject to the overarching fortunes of the franchise in some form or another, but there still mm -hmm. can be variation sort of year to year, I would expect. Mm -hmm. All right. Question from Andrew, Patreon supporter. On a recent episode, you said that it wasn't great that some team's payroll was only one sixth of the highest payroll. The most recent Forbes valuation has the Yankees valued at $6 billion and the Dodgers, Red Sox, and Cubs at almost $4 billion, while the Marlins, Rays, Royals, A's, and Reds are all $1.2 billion or less. Conveniently, the spread between the lowest, the Marlins, and the Yankees is about six times. The median of the five highest valuation is three and a half times that of the median of the five lowest valuations. According to Roster Resource, the median of the top five payrolls is 4.2 times the median of the bottom five payrolls. Clearly, the valuation metric is higher, but I wouldn't say that it is too much higher than the payroll metric. For now, let's ignore the idea that investing in your team via payroll will increase your team's value. What I want to know in general is, over a five to seven year period, what is the right payroll spread for the big market teams versus the small market teams? I don't doubt that every ownership group could afford more than they are spending now, but there will always be a discrepancy in values and resources for bigger markets. And what should our expectations be for quote unquote small market teams? So it's a, a good question because, yeah. Uh, yeah, we I don't remember what episode it was, but I think I've, I've looked at the spread in the roster resource expected payrolls and noticed that it seemed to be large between the maximum and the minimum. And that has actually increased generally over time. There was a, a Travis Sochik tweet from February where he noted the competitive balance tax era has not promoted competition or balance in 1995 and 1996, the last years before the CBT, the top five MLB payrolls were combined 2.4 times and 2.5 times greater than the lowest five. In 2010, the gap was 3.3 times. In 2021, the gap was 3.8 times. At least when Andrew emailed us, I guess it was even slightly higher than that, a little over four. So the disparity in payrolls seems to have grown over time which has not led to less competitive balance, really, as we have covered. Like, competitive balance still seems quite good and intact, and the correlation between payroll and winning has been fairly low of late. So I don't know that this is a problem when it comes to competitive balance, but it is, I suppose, striking that the payroll disparities have grown 
especially over this period of time where you have the competitive balance tax and you have revenue sharing and all these measures that ostensibly are supposed to equalize things, although in practice that is not really what they do or even really what they're designed to do. They're often more about restricting spending than they are about ensuring that all teams are spending to some degree. Right. I tend to think about these things. I mean, I think that it is it is a good thing to notice and know like what the gap really is between the Dodgers and, you know, the the Pirates or the Guardians mm-hmm. or whatever, the A's. But I think that probably a more useful ideal way to think about optimal payroll for for a given team one requires inf- some information that we don't have right i i think it's more useful to think about it within the context of the franchise's capacity to spend and so there is the the question of the worth of the owner right there's the question of the franchise value i think that those are relevant even if not all of that is going to be sort of a liquid asset that can then be deployed in in the service of payroll. But part of what would be ideal for us to know is like, what is the true, like, what is the true capacity of the A's? We know part of it because we're able to back in how much the, into how much the A's receive in, you know, national TV deals. We're able to back into how much they get in the form of other central revenue. We kind of have an idea of revenue sharing, but like, I want to know what they really make. What is your actual (laughs) capacity to spend? And so that's part of why these conversations, I think, often are put in sort of relational terms between the franchises that do spend and the ones that don't, because it's hard for us to really answer definitively, like, what is your real capacity to spend? We know that the answer is likely to be a lot more than what they're actually doing, because we know the money that is coming in before they ever sell a ticket or a beer, right? But Mm -hmm. we don't have perfect information about the other sort of ancillary stuff that allows them to spend or what their real revenue is from ticket sales, that sort of thing. So that's a, a sort of dodgy way of me saying that like, I don't actually have a perfect answer to this question because some of the information we need to answer it more precisely, we don't have. But Mm -hmm. I do think that thinking about sort of the pools of money that we know every team has access to before you even start to worry about their TV deal or their, you know, ticket sales gives you a good floor to operate from. Because while we don't know, you know, we don't know their revenues and we don't also know a complete accounting of their expenses, like it can be striking to look at the gap in like, here's what you have before you ever sell a ticket and here's what you're putting on the field. And to know what that Mm -hmm. gap is, I think can be sort of informative also. Yeah, I don't know that the gap in payrolls should be as wide as the gap in valuations of franchises. I I don't think it should because there are all sorts of things that go into those valuations and it can be the name recognition. It can be other assets that are owned by the franchise. It could be your local broadcast deal. It can be all sorts of things and there would maybe be some correlation certainly between that and how much you have at your disposal to spend in any given year but I don't think that there are any teams you know even if they're valued at a billion or something they still have a lot of money coming to them just from 
attendance and concessions as we saw with the pirates recently or with just revenue sharing and with the national broadcast deals that are split evenly and other revenue sources that every team gets a chunk of so I think that there are teams that could afford to spend a lot more than they're spending just based on that really even if they don't have one of the big local broadcast deals so I think the disparity should be smaller and probably should be smaller than it is and I'd like to see it be smaller not by limiting the teams at the top, but by having some sort yes. of salary floor. And maybe you might have to have some sort of upper limit in exchange uh, for a salary floor to make that work. Not no. that the players are eager to do that or accept that. But if you could bring up the teams that are spending just an embarrassingly small amount, I think that would be good. And again, I, I think we should note that there still is competitive balance and there still are a ton of teams that have a chance to win. I mean, more than ever, probably not just as a total, but as a percentage, probably, especially given the 12-team playoff format. So there is a lot of hope and faith out there to trot out the phrase that Bud Selig used to use. Like, It's hard to convince people of that, I think, when they see the payroll numbers and they see that Team X is spending four or five times more than Team Y. It's like, well, how could there be competitive balance? But it's baseball and you have weird playoffs and you have all sorts of other factors that make it hard to spend your way to a win. And you do have teams like the Rays that are just sort of skewing things by not spending and yet still being among the most successful teams. And that is hard to do. That's a testament to the race front office that they've been able to do that. Like yeah. there are certainly institutional disadvantages, some real, some self-inflicted from ownership, just not spending as much as it could. But like in the long term, I think it probably gets harder and harder for the small market teams or the low spending teams to preserve that advantage. Like early in the Moneyball era when you had teams like the A's or or Cleveland or others that were quick to embrace sabermetrics or the Rays, you know, they kind of got a lot out of that at that time by being the early adopters. And then the Yankees and the Dodgers and the other big teams got on board and sort of stole that advantage away. And now it's like, well, the Rays are somehow still managing to win year after year, but not all teams are that were in that boat before. So I I think it's hard because like whatever advantage you have as an early adopter, as a team that's not spending a ton and is looking for other ways to win, they will eventually get co-opted by the teams that are spending a lot and then your advantage will go away and maybe you can find a new advantage, but it probably gets harder and harder and the advantages get smaller and smaller. So long-term, I think it is good for a competitive balance to have not equality, but less of a disparity probably in terms of payrolls and the fact that it is wider than it used to be is not a good thing I guess even if it hasn't really been reflected in inferior competitive balance yeah I agree with all of that I think that like you know you have to be the race basically in order to completely maybe not completely but to largely foreclose an avenue of player acquisition and talent acquisition and still be as good as they are and i think that other teams like shouldn't test the theory of whether they're as smart as the race in order to do it and an easy way to do that is to to not do that is just spend some money on good players and then you you have good players because you've spent Mm -hmm. money on them 
Yep. All right. And I will just end with this. It's not exactly a question, but it's a comment from Shauna who says, I was just spending some downtime doing baseball trivia and came across this question. How many MLB records did Ty Cobb set in his career? This is a very strange question, right? How could anyone accurately calculate how many records were set? Maybe he has hit the least ground balls to the left side. Would that count? Of course, this leads to the conversation of what is a record and so on. But even besides that, is there any player who you can say, this guy has set 47 records? I've attached the screenshot and here is a link to the quiz. So it was a a multiple choice and it's just uh, how many records did Ty Cobb set? And you had a choice of 30, 90, 70 or 50. What? (laughs) Very weird, right? Very weird. So I tried to do some research on this and I did a newspapers.com search and I I looked for citations of 90 records associated with Ty Cobb and that claim appears in his obituary. So when he died some 60 years ago, people wrote at the time that he had set or or held 90 records, right? Which is, uh, it's a very strange claim, right? But that did appear in multiple articles, but I could not find an earlier source for that, that that was based on. I mean, there were other earlier articles during his playing career about records that he had set, but that 90 (laughs) specific number couldn't i didn't find anything before his obituary so i i don't know what that was drawing on whether someone just made it up certainly would be far from the first thing someone completely fabricated about ty cobb especially after his death i mean that happened a lot so it it just depends how you define the record so i i don't know if that's a reference to some official record of some sort or maybe it just sounded good it's like guy's got 90 records (laughs) he was really good (laughs) i don't know it's a weird one that is a very strange thing because like you want i mean the barometer i guess is like a a a meaningful record right you care about a record if it's something you'll track in the future to see if somebody else broke right like that Mm -hmm. is maybe my loose definition of the ones that we would care about like i wouldn't care about the guy who you know, I don't know, grounded out the most times to Pulsite or whatever. I mean, you might have oddities, right? You can have oddities that are, as as the, the name implies, like bits of weirdness that you would want to keep an eye on just because it's strange. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't care to, I doubt that he has 90 of anything that I'd care to like keep track of going forward <laughs> right. in the game in order to be like, oh, well, congratulations, you You've bested Ty Cobb in in this very specific weird bit of business. Like, you just wouldn't care to do that probably, right? No. I mean, you could come up with an infinite number of records almost, right? Like, you could just subdivide it into some tiny split or sample or meaningless, you know? He was the best in day games on Tuesdays or whatever. I mean, you could come up with uh, 90 records about probably, like, almost any player who's been around for a while. I don't know. I'll issue that challenge to someone who wants to to do that work but yeah it's uh very imprecise i i don't really know where that claim comes from but you do see it repeated here or there around the internet about ty cobb so it's it's very vague very unspecific and not satisfying to me so i don't know where we would sort of set the cutoff for this is a record as opposed to a piece of trivia in fairness this was a trivia question so (laughs) but still like 
where does where does that line get drawn yeah, between where does, this is meaningless and this is meaningful? Yeah, where does the fun fact end and the record right. begin, you know? Exactly. Yes. Well, we will ponder that, I guess. That's a, perhaps an unanswerable philosophical question that we each will have to contemplate in our own hearts. But uh, we will end there. So thanks, as always, for the excellent questions. All right. One follow-up thought on that question about roster turnover and chemistry. I was trying to find an article by Russell Carlton on that subject that I knew existed and that I had actually suggested to him. I couldn't find it while we were recording. I have since found it, and I will link to it on the show page. But it's from 2013, and it was prompted by a comment by Brandon Belt, who was asked about the Dodgers at that time and how they had recruited a bunch of new players. And Belt said, you can't buy chemistry. So the implication was that the Dodgers wouldn't be as successful as the Giants because uh, they had a lot of new faces. And I think history has borne out since then that the Dodgers have been decent since 2013, I would say. Anyway, I asked Russell to look into this at the time, and he did, and I won't go into all of the methodology. It's there in the article, but I will share his conclusions here. He wrote, I found that there is evidence that the amount of turnover that a team experience has an effect on a hitter's performance to the tune that, under ideal circumstances and assuming that we have a causal relationship rather than just a correlation, a team might leverage a few extra home runs from roster consistency. However, there was no evidence that pitchers were affected, nor was there any evidence that teams performed better or worse than they looked on paper due to high or low turnover, or any evidence that a team whose members were familiar with each other had any advantage in close games. And then it's noted elsewhere that even the advantage that seems to show up for hitters, it wasn't huge, and it could have been an artifact of moving to a new ballpark or age effects, etc. So he notes that All we have here is an association. Turnover in changing teams is associated with other factors that might be in play here. The ballpark issue, for instance. Still, the argument that this really is an effective team chemistry isn't that hard to make if we assume that low turnover builds friendships sensible and that friendships make people happier, very sensible. Science has shown that people show better physical performance when they are happier. Maybe that little extra spring in a player's step or swing is enough to push a ball over the wall that otherwise would have been caught by the center fielder. But then there's the matter of whether low turnover unto itself is a goal that a team should pursue. Well, if a team has a bunch of Hall of Fame caliber players, then yes, obviously, keeping Hall of Famers on your roster is a good thing. But because we're talking about maybe one home run of added value, if a team has a chance to add a player who projects to be five homers better than the player he would replace, it will get more bang for the buck if it simply signs the new player. The effects of player talent level far, far outstrip the effects of low turnover on the roster. It feels so satisfying to think that a group of young players might grow into a World Series winning crew through shared adversity and in the meantime develop great friendships with each other because that's the plot of every team sports movie ever, but sports movie plots are often terrible guidebooks for running actual teams. However, he does conclude a team can help the new guy get acclimated and maybe hit a few homers by having some sort of simple welcoming ritual, or having a guy around who is really good at reaching out to people and making them feel welcome. You know, a good clubhouse guy. Maybe through that effort, teams can get all the benefits of bringing in a better player without the penalty that he might pay for being the new kid on the block. So there might be something there, but if so, it's pretty small. 
There's certainly an effect historically. I've written about this before. If you look at the teams that use the most players and just go through the most players in a given season, almost always those teams will be less successful. But of course, that tends to be because of the reason why those teams have such high turnover. It's very young teams. It's very injured teams, etc. They didn't go into the season planning to have that high turnover. Probably something went wrong or it's a sign of some inherent lack of quality in that roster. And I've even shown that continuity can be a bad thing at times, or there seems to be a cost to complacency when World Series winning teams tend to bring back a higher percentage of their rosters than World Series losing teams. And historically, the World Series losers have tended to go on to do better in the next season. So you can maybe be a bit too attached to bringing the same players back. And you can see how being in an environment where there's constant turnover might not be great for performance, but having some amount of turnover, I mean, Maybe that keeps you on your toes, right? If you feel like you have to be at your best all the time because someone might take your job or they might ship you out of there, there's probably some happy medium where that serves as an incentive and a, a motivator as opposed to something that just puts you in a bad mood and takes away your motivation. Of course, we're talking about effects on the field, not necessarily effects on fans, but I do think that fans in general care more about winning than the way you win. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. Sam McClellan, AAAA, Troy McClure, Michael Goldfarb, and David Byerman. Thanks to all of you. And of course, remember, Patreon perks include playoff live streams for Patreon supporters, access to the Patreon Discord group, where there is constant chatter during the season, and monthly bonus pods hosted by me and Meg. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Bye.